0: Hello everyone, my name is Ryan Griggs and I'm the host of the Renaissance podcast. Alongside me is Colorado Craft Beef and this is a conversation that I'm really looking forward to. So to get started, so I guess to add some context about my background, I had a tech background, was so disconnected from our food production and I had a lot of family stuff happen the like, last couple of years and really opened up my eyes to realizing just how disconnected I had been. So I switched to regenerative agriculture Uh, did a bunch of traveling last year and worked on a farm and that really opened up my eyes to just all of that world but then more specifically with the farm i was on in pennsylvania he was a believe a fourth or fifth generation farmer and that was the first thing that caught my attention on your website was the fact that uh, i believe it's fifth generation and started with the enlarged homestead act so i'd love to really i guess dig into that first is just the history piece of this because that's why i love agriculture there's so much historical background, especially from uh, a family generational line. So, yeah, I guess if you could talk a little bit about what exactly was the Enlarged Homestead Act and if you could just give a background behind Colorado Craft Beef.
1: Sure. So, uh, as you mentioned, we we are in the, the fifth generation now. Our little girls, they'll be the sixth, <laughs> um, which, which is a pretty cool place to be, to know that the history of the ranch has been around that long. We actually live a half a mile from the original homestead. Wow. Uh, of course, you know there's there's trees now, but uh, once upon a time that that is where my great great grandfather came out from Kansas during the Large Homestead Act. Um, so that was a way to help pull you know homesteaders. West, Mm -hmm. basically, Uh, because originally it was they they had a full section. So six hundred and forty acres. But within the Enlarged Homestead Act, they brought that down to three hundred twenty. So half of that. Uh, So when he he came out, he he actually rode his horse down our county road that's about a mile from where we live. And found grass that was higher than his horse's belly and decided that that's where he was going to move his wife and four children. Uh, and then they, they homesteaded there and lived there for, you know, the next 38 years. Um, and then it became generational. There's multiple homesteads around where we live or were original homesteads. Um, and then that actually progressed into where my, my father lives, which is, is two miles down the road from us. Um, And then, you know, the inception of, of the ranch, Uh, but of course it's, it's grown quite a bit since then. But, but we do hold pretty strong to that legacy piece that it's been in the, you know, that, that piece of ground has been in the family for that long. And it is a, a pretty cool story to know that that history is still rooted there. And then, you know, Colorado beef, Colorado craft beef, part of that is to help take it into the next generation To do something a little bit different than we've been doing you know over the past 110 years because our consumer has changed so much the not just the consuming public but how how we produce beef as far as how we market it um you know and and frankly jeff and i's skill sets with you know more of a kind of sales and marketing and business background to be able to to connect a little bit differently with with a consumer
0: So. so i guess my next question would be could you just elaborate a little bit more on the previous 110 years what what you all were doing versus now uh i guess the differences
1: uh actually there's there's some differences as far as you know how we're marketing telling the story and our skill set but as far as how we're raising cattle it's still very similar Uh, the ground is still intact Uh, actually in the early but in the early 60s was really the last time that that ground was farmed because you know they came from from an area that was farmed, so they're mm-hmm. like I'm pretty sure we can farm this, and and frankly, it's just not made for that. It is made for running cattle. Uh, we're very sandy. Uh, you know, the dust bowl pops up as far as uh, making sure that we don't run into those conditions again. So leaving that ground intact, it has been that way since the 60s. Um, and we actually have a haycicle that sits in our front yard that's kind of a reminder of that. And it was over by my dad's place, and that was the last time it had moved since the 60- 60s with my great-grandfather, tried to grow hay and he was pulling that haysickle with horses and they ran off with him and he basically just unhooked that thing and left it there and said, We will not we will not farm this ground again. It is made for running cattle hmm. and and that's that's what we do where where we live and, and that's just the best use of the ground. And cattle are, are such a wonderful creature, you know, being a, a ruminant that they can utilize that grass that Really, it just, the ground wasn't suitable for other things. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that they can utilize that, upcycle that, and make it such an incredible high-quality protein is a story that we just continue to tell. So
0: so I'm curious, you're mentioning with the type of ground, it's, uh, I guess, difficult to, to farm. Is that for the whole surrounding area, too? Because I'm curious if if that would be the case, then outside of ruminants, how would you be able to have produce
1: Sure. We live in a part of Colorado that's so incredibly diverse from agriculture, which is wonderful. Uh, Right where our place sits is even different than 5 or 10 miles down the road. So the fact that it's best suited for summer grazing because that's when we have rainfall and green growing grass, and you know the part of the world that we live in. That's what it's best for. So summer grazing with cattle just makes sense. Uh, but you don't have to go very far down the road. That you know, row crop farming or dry land uh, may make sense. Uh, there's a lot of irrigated ground when you get closer to the to the river where. They have water, not just relying on Mother Nature, um, and there's so many different ways that you can produce where we live in Colorado, and and other parts of the country. And that's something that that Jeff and I talk about a lot. Is we're we're trying to we want to tie the chain together to let you know it have individual producers do what they're really good at on a particular piece of ground, and it's not the same. Just a couple miles down the road it's not the same for everybody mm-hmm. so being able to utilize the natural resources and you know the the animals and that kind of symbiosis the best that they can on their particular operation is something that is incredibly important
2: yeah one of the one of the basic cornerstones of our mission is letting people optimize what they can do not maximize because that is the one uh, i'm an agriculture nerd from a lot of different verticals Everybody talks about how many bushels per acre, how many pounds per head, how many whatever, you know, whatever unit you are measuring with, and it's about maximizing. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And that is where I I like the regenerative side and the regenerative conversation because maximizing at some point will come back and cause problems. You know, you can't do max reps in the gym every day. You'll hurt yourself. You can't do max reps in ag either because you'll – you know destroy the land maybe it's not good for the animals Um, but in the current agricultural economy if you aren't trying to maximize when you get an opportunity in a lot of ways you may not survive another year because the economics of agriculture have changed so much in the last 40 years Uh, and that's where our mission to let people optimize what they're good at pay them for what they're doing in a good way Um, you know put your money where your mouth is and that's been a lot of fun for us because a lot of people, you know, just recently with some of the business moves we've made, uh, some people have reached out and they're like, how do we make this better? And they're not just talking about how do I make more money? They're saying, how do we work within what you guys are building to make everybody better? Mm-hmm. And that, re- that cooperative collaborative nature, I think is really at the heart of the regenerative movement.
0: I agree. I'm curious to, With the economic side of everything, because that's one thing that I really want to paint the full picture through this podcast is trying to explain the whole story of agriculture, everything that goes into it, because um, the profit margins are so slim. And I remember whenever I was on the farm doing the farmer's markets, uh, we were regenerative, but one of the farms next to us, they sprayed their corn and all their crops with uh, glyphosate, and they did the conventional way. So their crops were cheaper than ours. And when people would come up to us, they, they, had, they, they would always question, obviously, the pricing and all of that. And they couldn't fully understand why we were a couple dollars more than the corn next to us. So I guess, could you talk about the economic side when you're saying from 40 years ago till now?
2: Mm-hmm. So there's, there's two ways to view economics and agriculture. And just a little bit about me. Uh, my name's Jeff, but I have a degree in agricultural business with minors in finance and accounting and I am a recovering private equity dork. <laughs> so when we start breaking down economics, value chains, and the math behind some of this stuff, it's not from an opinion standpoint. It's from a almost sterile financial modeling perspective so that you can see all the things that move before you apply feelings and tradition and legacy to those. So when you look at the economics of agriculture, in my humble opinion, there's two sides to it. There is what does the producer get and what is the producer market allowing them to do because in a lot of ways most agricultural producers are price takers you take what the market gives you Mm. period Uh, and luckily what we've been able to do is make a price making model we get to determine our own pricing and the market tells us tells us if that's acceptable or not but the flip side of that is how that applies to the consumer you know if we look at the economics of the world and how different community or different cultures spend more, more or less per person or per percentage of their income than we do in the U S that's a whole other conversation. Um, So if we look at just the economics of production agriculture, the most interesting part about it is from the mid seventies to the mid 2010s, the economic profitability dropped about 60%. So in the seventies for every dollar you put into agriculture in general, You could expect to get a dollar thirty-five back. Not a bad margin, right? If you're selling T-shirts for that, you'll do that all day long. Yeah. And today, that's closer to a dollar fourteen. Now that profitability is not great. You know, fifteen percent margin barely pays the bills. But then take into account that your your risk of capital is exceptionally higher, because the net profitability per steer or per calf in Kara's dad's operation hasn't changed in four decades, but the cattle are three times more expensive. So to make that same $100 an animal, you're spending three times as much and putting it out to risk. Those economics become untenable at some point unless you are at massive scale, which, of course, gets a lot of people in hot water with the regenerative movement or whatever else because people think because you're big, you don't care. Mm -hmm. That's a bit of a misnomer. Because if we look at the economics of that, if you have, I mean, just, I come from construction and a lot of other unit price models. If you look at how you're going to pay for animal welfare, it's probably going to be a budget of X amount of dollars or pennies or dimes per animal. Mm -hmm. Well, If you're running 10,000 and it's a dollar an animal for just basic welfare care, you have a bigger budget. So in a lot of cases, the bigger producers are actually taking a lot better care of their ground and everything else because they have more resources to disperse over a larger area. So they can have more economic impact when they want to do something, as opposed to somebody running 100 animals that their budget is so tight to double that budget might break them. Um, So that's where the regenerative side gets a little different because regenerative and or economically viable are, are, can be the same thing they can also be at odds with each other and if we look at the consumer side of things you know to your example of hey our corn your corn's more expensive than the other guy well typically that's there's a lot of things driving that right your cost of production is probably higher your yield is probably lower because you weren't able to mitigate pest pressure or mm-hmm. other things we have that same issue in the beef side of things it's just same concept different math right but the United States, for all of our great opportunities to provide things to one another, we spend the least, all, well, or last I knew, the least amount per capita on food than any other developed country. Really? Yeah. It's like 8 to 10%, depending on the math, of our income is spent on food. It's the lowest number that I'm aware of, last time I looked, like South Korea is like 54% because they can't produce, they have to import everything. So we sit in this position of great abundance Mm -hmm. with an ability to be upset because corn is a dollar or $2 more with the most effective and safest food system in the world. And all those things are at odds with each other. And it's disconcerting to us as producers, but also as parents, it's like, man, how do we teach our kids what's, what's going on? Or people like yourself, how do we engage with the other side of of the aisle so that it's like, Hey man, we are more expensive. Our beef is more expensive than what you buy at the grocery store. Um, but there's a reason for that. You know, what What system do you want to support? Where mm-hmm. do you want to vote with your dollar? And that, luckily for us, has been resonating well. Uh, but that's the hard part. You know, you, you asked a simple question, and here I am, four minutes into a diatribe, about all the different economics, and everybody's probably going, holy cow. And each one of those things could be a totally separate podcast. Yeah. So for somebody to um, say, well, I've researched this a lot, I'm like, please define a lot (laughs) because we live in it in every sense of the word every day, um, and it's exceptionally hard to unpack.
0: So whenever you mention the larger, uh, just the larger farms and ranches, is that different from, say, the factory farms? Or I guess how would you define that?
2: Well, I guess I would ask how you define a factory farm.
0: Yeah, that's a good question too.
2: Because that's a that's a definition thrown out, thrown around a lot. Yeah, I do think it exists in some areas, but I also think the food system demands that to a certain level because people want le- a lowest cost food. Yeah, and when we look at the numbers of what we produce, to some level, scale is required.
0: It makes me think of California because there are really huge, insane feedlots. But when you think of L.A. and having to to feed that whole entire city. There's no really land in, in between that city to farm. So, I mean, it makes sense why we have that too.
2: Well, and just look at, if you're mentioning LA, Vegas is only two hours away. That's true. San Diego's an hour and a half down the road. Yeah. And most of the food that comes to those areas comes from the Central Valley of California or the Yuma, Arizona area. To some degree, you can sit in downtown LA and be upset with the system because you don't see it. Yeah. You don't. You go to Whole Foods. You get what you need to do, which is fine, but you don't understand the steps and the process it took to get there. So, yeah. I, again, what do you define as a factory farm? Sorry to put you on. Point. No, that
0: it's. <laughs> I would just uh, a massive. I see that's a very broad term too. I was going to say a massive scale operation that I can't even say the like a specific number of cattle, for example, that they would have, but just giant uh, feedlots of just cattle Mm -hmm. to where they're not really pasture-raised at all, and they're just feeding them whatever, going back to the maximizing, maximizing just their weight to try to fatten them up as quickly as possible to just turn into numbers game of how many cattle they can produce and get on the shelves. Mm -hmm. I guess that's my way of factory farming, but that's still not the best, obviously, definition at all.
2: Well, Kara could talk to the optimized versus maximized conversation in a feedlot because she actually holds a master's degree in cow nutrition. She spent her entire thesis time in her master's program in a feed yard. Um, So, you know, before we kick it over for the nutritional side, from the economic side, they aren't just hammering those animals. Um, To a certain degree, they have to perform, right? Mm -hmm. They have to gain. Um, There are some people that do it better than others. But, you know, we've got personal friends that run some of those feed yards that hold 100,000 cows, which is insane. Yeah, I want no part of that. But at the same time, when we harvest 650,000 cows a week in the United States, how else do you do it?
0: I guess that would, yeah, I'm really curious to hear about that experience.
1: Sure. And so... One of one of the, like, let's backtrack for a second as far as cattle in general. One of the beauties of that ruminant is really those cattle that end up in, in a feed yard, which the majority of them do, depending on what system they're going through, they still spend 80% of their life out on grass from the time they were born until they actually entered that that feed yard um, and because they can utilize that. There's other protein sources, frankly, that can't you know, with chickens and hogs, they're not, their system is not made to utilize grass like a cow's, like a ruminants is. Uh, so they already have that piece that they can do that. Uh, but then they enter that that feedlot phase, um, and and we know that these animals are destined to be meat. That's that's just the reality of it. Uh, so when we look at it, a system to be able to Optimize that piece of it. Um, You may be able to get an animal finished on grass uh, But it could take up to three or four years Compared to the the cattle that are going through that system. It could be, you know 18 to 24 months is about the average that that they go through that system Uh, So we think about the amount of feed that they're consuming the amount of water Um, You know, we want to talk some of the environmental impacts of all of those things um it becomes a bigger conversation than just the system, too. Uh, and I I have been in, in feed yards my whole life. And I think a lot of times there's a correlation with the systems of a lack of animal welfare or a lack of care. And that's very, I'd say that's that's pretty off, off base. Because we, you know, me as a, a trained nutritionist, I mean, I'm trained to... Make sure that they have the optimal diet in those settings. Well, and what um, was your thesis in? It, basically, my thesis was the interface between health and nutrition. And so, wasn't it wasn't
2: like trace minerals. I mean, it was exceptional. Uh, well, it was
1: actually range. a byproduct of biodiesel. That, or sorry, um, yeah, the crude cl- clu- clu- glycerin is a byproduct of biodiesel, and we're utilizing that as an energy source to see if that would would work in that system. Um, and then balancing the health piece of that to make sure these cattle are still staying, staying healthy as well as, you know, having the proper nutrition. So all these, these animals in the feed yard, they have a nutritionist, they have a veterinarian, they have their caretakers that are, are making sure that all of these pieces are, are right for them. Um, so there's mo- so many facets to kind of balancing that quality of life for that animal, also knowing that there is an endpoint and being in feed yards most of my whole life um you know and cattle get to that stage where they have basically you know the this kind of a bed and breakfast a lot of them even if they had pasture access the likelihood of them using it's still relatively low mm-hmm. <laughs> They're like well i have i have my beautiful buffet here <laughs> and my you know my accommodations and this is this is good. Day. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm I'm happy. Yeah. Um, so unfortunately, sometimes there's just that correlation that that the care is not where it should be in these settings, and and that's that's not the truth. Um, it's all of the care is is taken into account, but there's other pieces of it. Um, and so I don't. I don't know if, am I missing something in that situation? Um, then that-
2: pr- probably the other thing that a lot of people don't correlate with a feed yard because we have our own feed yard, our cattle are grain finished. Um, Kara manages the program. We have, I mean, the amount of software I I can show you after the podcast, the amount of stuff we're tracking every day and, and we're small, we're very small. We're not anywhere near that size, but what's most important to understand, if you look at Eastern Colorado, we can't have cattle out on pasture all year. Mm. It's not tenable. We have to store product. We have to store energy in a way that can be fed in the winter months. That's where grain, hay, and other products come into play. So, like, for instance, uh, on a square mile where we live, 640-acre section, you can have about 100 steers out there in the summer. But we also live in sand, like beach sand. Literally, if you put a shovel in the ground, it's almost like beach sand. So once that grass goes dormant and that root zone goes dormant, if we leave cattle out there, they're going to turn it into literally a sand dune can't leave them out and and i've had people in other podcasts well how do you change the soil profile i'm like i think we have to talked to moses about that. personally <laughs> i don't know um but so that's one of the things that a lot of people miss the forest for the trees is there are certain things we can't do there are certain things that just don't work um so take will harris for example white oak pastures um i've sent will emails when he was on rogan's podcast i was like hey man good conversation Because he does acknowledge some of the uh, hurdles that we have to face as production people because, you know, it sounds bad to say you're in production, but you are. Mm. And if that system isn't generating, you know, money to pay the light bill, you have a problem. But when Will says, and and I I could be butchering the math here, I think he said on Rogan's podcast that, yeah, we have 3,300 cows on 3,200 acres. That stocking rate is orders of magnitude different than we can do. But why is that? Well, they have trees. They have different grass types. They have different soil types. And they get 44 inches of rain a year in Bluffton, Georgia. We get 11. Jeez. We can't change that. Yeah. So back to the optimize conversation. Optimize is the idea. But there's no, I can't put it in a formula and say to optimize, you have to do this. Because there's too many variables. Um. That Some are in your control, some are not. Some are climate. Some are how the rain comes. Uh, We had a rain event at the ranch two years ago. Um, The far side of the ranch is five miles from our house. So in a five-mile east-to-west line, on the far west side of the line, there was five inches of rain overnight. In the middle of that five-mile section where Kara's dad lives, there was three inches of rain. And we're on the far east side, we had one inch of rain across five miles we depend on rain to grow the grass to nourish the cattle Mm -hmm. do you think we can graze even the far side of the ranch the same as the other side of the ranch and every one of those things happens every week and so you're constantly adjusting and managing and then the market might go totally sideways and it's interesting because um uh, like i said i like i really like the regenerative movement I, i love the engagement piece with the general consumer my only grind with the regenerative movement is by by saying are you regenerative in some ways it insinuates that if you're not regenerative you're degenerative and in the bigger scheme of things that, and not saying that ag doesn't need adjustment because there are certain things we could do better and that's what one of the things Karen and i are trying to do is how do we do better for the cattle for the consumer and everybody else there's a bell curve to everything, but I would hang my hat on the fact that 90% of the industry is doing their very level best with economics in decline, profitability in decline, people having to take jobs in town, banking regulations are getting nasty, interest rates are at an all-time high, while at the same time we have regulatory risk in every state that's coming down the pipe, and you got to make sure it doesn't put you out of business. Yeah. So, you know... It's not woe is me as the ag producer in the room, but I think there is a lot to be said for seeing the bigger picture. Um, You know, the people that ask us, do you rotationally graze? No, we can't. Because if we did what Joel Salatin does or Will Harris does and we put four times the stocking rate on a piece of ground and move them in three days, the ground won't come back. It's sand. It doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. Doesn't Because the theory in that is, the hoof is going to penetrate the root layer and it's going to trap water. Well, that's only if you get water. (laughs) And in our case, what would happen is it'd penetrate the layer. It allows more sun and heat into that root zone and actually kills the plants. Jeez. So I wish there was a silver bullet and we could say this is how everybody's going to do it and we're going to be 10% more productive. Um, But it just doesn't exist. And that's the one thing that I would love for everybody to understand we're all trying to do our very best and there are things we can all do better as an industry in the university system whether it's texas tech where carol went to school or colorado state university where i went to school or any of the other land grant schools that are strictly built around agriculture and the amount of research and development is crazy because we're producing more food with fewer inputs than we've done in the history of human of humans um And then a couple other data points. Uh, 67%. Grass-finished cattle have a 67% higher carbon footprint than grain-finished. Strictly because they're around longer. They're on grass, and when they're eating grass is when they're generating the methane everybody's worried about. It's not feed yards. And 87%. 87% of of the food grown in the United States is grown by family operations. And a lot of people miss that. They're like, well, factory farms, corporate farming. I'm like, well, corporate farming is strictly a family (laughs) putting a tax structure together to try to not get hammered by the government or put in proper secession planning. But the vast majority of food produced in this country is by people that are literally doing the work.
0: So with that, um, my next question for that would be on imports versus exports, because we import a lot of food and we export a lot of food. If we have... If we produce so much food, I I guess, could you explain the economics of why we export for meat, for example? I know we export a lot to South Korea Mm -hmm. and other places. I don't know if you could talk more on that as to why we do all of that versus trying to feed the people just in the country.
1: Yeah. So I could touch on the beef side of that with the the beef imports and exports. So in, in this country, the beef we produce typically has a higher fat. Percentage than other countries. Um, So one of the import export things you see is so like South Korea, for example They really like fat in their meat Um, So we we export quite a bit to them a lot of times though It's typically cut specific like short ribs Mm. or you know other other things that we don't have as much of an appetite for in this country like the offal market and for instance, yes offal yeah. so whether you know it's heart liver you know any any of the offal organs those are a big export market hides are a big export market um, a lot of the, the you know the offal or drop however you want to call it that is the big percentage of the export market most of you know the whole cuts our grind is staying here Um, Is is that
2: changing though? Is that starting to flex as more people come into the middle class?
1: Some to a point. It's really eating preferences though. It's cut preferences. It's kind of cut specific Mm -hmm. as far as the beef imports and exports. We do still import quite a bit of lean, lean trim because we have so much fat here. And we don't have as much lean trim. So we have excess fat, especially when you start talking about burger, thing like that, Mm -hmm. to be able to grind, you know, mix together the fat and lean ratio. And we just don't have as much of that, especially very lean meat, uh, because of the way we produce here, that that is a big import market. And then these other pieces of that are the export markets.
2: Yeah. And the other thing to think about from a total system, our total system conversation. Very few in or very few countries in the world, like maybe four or five countries in the world grow grain to feed the livestock. It doesn't exist. If you're in Colombia, you don't take arable land and grow corn to feed it to the cow. That cow is typically a dairy cow that produces milk for the family until they stop producing milk. And then they become dinner,
0: Mm
2: -hmm. you know, Argentina, Brazil, Australia to some degree. What other countries am I missing that actually grain feed ruminants?
1: There's more and more all the time because there's that interest from the quality of product, frankly. Um, It's a very different product when you have a grain-finished animal compared to a grass-finished animal. Yeah, It's it's very different. And and our palates in this country are much more geared towards that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we could talk from the nutritional side about fat in general and that's a, a piece that we're, we're blessed to have in this country when we have these fatty cuts that help fuel our bodies and our minds with the fat piece of it.
0: So, you-
2: uh, yeah, so the, I mean, the kind of the cap on that is we're fortunate enough in this country to have enough arable land to grow that to optimize that calf's potential mm-hmm. for meat production. Um, and then... The only other economic factor is as people exit the lower class into the middle class which i think when did we go to that protect the harvest dinner in idaho was like 2015 it was right before we moved back protect the harvest was talking about the fact that a billion people were going to enter the middle class worldwide in the next decade wow well what's what is the what happens in a developing country when you exit the lower class and move to the middle class You don't buy new shoes. You don't change where you live. You don't really change anything other than your food standards. And that is where you are driving more protein, more things of that nature. And a lot of countries are not built to produce what we can. So there's other economic pressures that are outside of agriculture, that are cultural, that are systemic, that are whatever, that are creating more demand that, quite frankly, other people can't meet. No pun intended. (laughs) Um, And it's it's interesting because all those things come together. And I think, uh, I mean, I thank the good Lord every day that we are in a position that we can have conversations like this and not be worried about whether or not we can get meat tomorrow.
1: Yeah, Because a hungry person has one problem.
0: Very. And that's, I was having a conversation yesterday with A.J. Richards. I don't know if... Yeah, I know A.J. And he was just talking about Walmart and how one in every $4 spent on food is at Walmart. And then if their food supply chain would break in three days, I think most of America would be without food. And that just blew me away to, I guess you could say how fragile it could be. Um, I mean, that's also why I have this podcast is to just showcase all of the work that goes into all of this. It's just an insane amount of backbreaking work that you have all these um, unknown elements with the weather and other things they could just go south um,
2: well and that exists in a lot of different verticals like if you look at the fuel system you want to stop and fuel up your pickup yeah they're you're one or two days away if those distribution centers stop from having every fuel station out of fuel
0: I mean it just goes back to just being in a big city tour you go to a grocery store you just expect it to be stocked yeah. and now that's just how in terms of maximizing and for gas, yeah, you just don't really think about it. It's just, we expect it to be there. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. I guess on the topic of feed, too, um, do you use software for that to determine what you feed your cattle to? Because I know on the website you mentioned with flaxseed. So I was just curious what all decisions need to be made to determine the feed that you're specifically feeding your cattle.
1: Uh, yes. It's a, it, it really depends on their stage of growth. that's what we're balancing it to Uh, it'd be very similar in human nutrition you know an infant has different nutritional needs than somebody who's in a mature adult it's very similar in the cattle world of the energy needs the protein requirements all of those pieces of the nutritional puzzle from the time they're born until they they become meat for us and uh, so we're just, we're balancing that. We do have software I mean, the software is incredible. Honestly, the, the technologies that are out there to be able to utilize are, are kind of endless, which is, is great uh, to be able to, to know these things and then collect the data because even, you know, as a trained scientist, the, the mantra that always was you can't manage what you don't measure. So that's a, a thought process of like how we we can look at the data and do better. Uh, we're actually looking now at looking at this animal's entire genome, doing testing to see their genetic potential and how we can optimize that from feed and the the resources that, that we have with that animal, and we can do that from you know the time that they're born. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be able to help make better decisions for their quality of life and where, how we, we manage that accordingly. Um, so the, the depth of, of data and technology really is cool. You coming from a technology background, I mean, that's it is pretty incredible to see that. Um, you know, the, the feed truck links to Bluetooth. And <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it's it is really cool. We're looking at putting shoot scales in, they'll do the same, it'll be Bluetooth links. So as soon as a, a calf comes across that, we know how much they weigh. And you know, the, the amount of, of data that that can be had is, is pretty incredible.
0: How do you? I guess, how far in advance are you planning ahead, I guess, maybe using through this software? Because I guess, for example, um, I visited a ranch last year in Westcliff, Colorado, mm-hmm. and he this was around June. And whenever he went to the processing to schedule some of his cattle to be uh, processed, this was scheduled for September of this year. So, I mean, that opened up my eyes to just the whole processing world, but... I, I didn't realize how far in advance he has to plan for things. So I'm curious. Yeah. What does that look like for you too?
1: Yeah. Jeff, you want to touch on that because yeah. that's part of the, our, our business changes is to where we, we weren't projecting two years in advance because that's what we were doing.
2: Yeah. I mean the harvest dates we're using right now, we spoke for an early 21 <laughs> and mind you we're growing like crazy um, as the business dork. It's like, well, how do you forecast that? I'm like, and if you put a standard deviation of 10% on that thing based on the percentage growth we've been having, it's just crazy. Uh, so even last year we, ha- we have a great head of marketing uh, and with some of our business changes, we recently brought him on full time, but he was a contractor and last year from March to September, he didn't really do anything because we hit such a stride in sales. that It's like, man, we can't keep up. We had to slow down marketing and that was a, learning curve because we couldn't get more cattle we couldn't get more harvest dates and quite frankly we were not going to push the system that we use or the cattle that we use um, to try to meet that demand we didn't feel it was a, jud- a judicious use of resources for really anybody and in that uh, we actually went a different direction and about eight weeks ago we purchased our own processing facility uh, we and then the question is, man, what do you do? You got a, you got a whole lot more potential. Uh, do you want to go try to sell all of that? Um, and we went out of the box. We, we went definitely in a direction that agriculture typically doesn't go. Um, we got very creative. We got very strategic in our thoughts. And we partnered with some people that are like-minded that helped us to purchase the facility and are helping us to grow the business. Uh, And Jocko Willink is our head investor. Wow. Uh, His co-founders of Jocko Fuel, Brian and Pete came in. Uh, We've got a bunch of other veterans on the team like Travis Mills, uh, Dr. Sean Baker is one of our partners. Hmm. And we had to take that collaborative mindset with our understanding and implementation of what we've already done. And take it outside of agriculture and present it in a way that people such as them wanted to be a part of it and that is something very atypical in agriculture that's where i really think the regenerative movement is helping ag in the best way because it's making people get out of the mindset of this is how we've always done it and You know the best part is of anybody we've talked to like, can you get enough cows i'm like man cows is not the problem (laughs) it is demand it is simple things like boxes and freezer space and um making that mental shift was hard or, or is hard in the industry because there's a lot of people that do direct to consumer beef and they'll do 10 head or 20 head a year or they have open heifers that they feed and that's what their friends buy And I'm certainly not bagging on that. But that's not a business because now you can't get as optimized with software to grow your business Mm -hmm. with feed efficiencies to really make sure you're doing it right. You're not paying yourself. So now you're suffering on your other side of your business. And as an ag producer, you get so spread out. You're doing everything just good enough and you can't meet your potential and some of the things you could do really well. And we had to get out of that spot. And we had to go to a level that, you know, even when we started the company, we had a lot of money invested in a high-end website, uh, national shipping on day one. We weren't going to wade into the pool. Mm -hmm. And by taking that level of commitment and that level of ownership and execution to uh, (laughs) reference Jocko, there's no other option. You're going to go do this and you're going to go figure it out and you cannot do it the way everybody's always done it. And I'm not saying that the people before us didn't know what they were doing. They were probably thinking the same things we've already shared on the podcast. There's a ton of things. We're doing it the best we can. There's only so much we can do. And then if you take the trajectory of the profitability of ranching and farming in general to someone that's been doing it for 50 years, they have seen a downward trend for decades. How do you get them to be optimistic? You got to get them out out of the whirlwind, right? And... That's been some of the funnest part about this project, aside from partnering with great people that are certainly helping us to build our business, but showing other people in agriculture that it can be done and watching some of those people from agriculture come to you and say, how can we be a part of it? Or, you know, people like yourself, hey, how do we learn about this? Um, Because quite frankly, a lot of people in ag, I'll love them all to death, Some of them don't want to leave the ranch, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Some of them wouldn't come in here and sit under lights with a microphone, and that's okay too. But, man, we got to all row the boat the same direction because we can't take another five decades of decline.
0: So I guess with that, because whenever you're saying, I don't know, to me, with farmers that have been in this their whole lives, and, again, passed down from generation to generation, and they're, say, 65 years old, when you take into consideration that on average we have two to 3,000 thoughts an hour, so then you multiply that times 65 years, but then also just all of the family stories that your your parents tell you growing up, and then you're told about regenerative agriculture that's being forced, I guess how could these two worlds work collectively? Because uh, I could just see a lot of problems with just trying to push that on to these folks that, again, have that's all i've known their whole lives and now they're being told everything they're doing is wrong and it just comes off across i don't know like whenever i brought up factory farming just stuff like that i don't want i guess i don't know what i'm trying to say here is i
2: i think what you're looking at is how do we take the emotional connection out of it right because if you say factory farming to the wrong egg person they're gonna i mean they're gonna put on their boxing gloves. yep And people not in ag, and myself included, I say stupid things all the time. But sometimes you ask a question that hits somebody the wrong way. Or you propose an idea that comes across maybe a little antagonistically. And you didn't mean it that way. But you also don't just want to ride the boat to the bottom of the ocean. Like, hey, should we get a life raft? Nah, it's fine. The water's up to my knees. Are you sure? It's cool. Man, it just hit my belt. Uh, Quit worrying about stuff and i so i definitely get where you're going um i think the legacy piece of ag is the most interesting part because if you know before we get into kara and her experience with all of that you have 40 or 50 years of degraded profitability some of the people that are 65 can't retire they don't have cash sitting around so what do you do do you sell parts of the farm so they can retire and now a smaller farm can try to be more efficient with less resources That conversion is nasty. And if you think about the production we have to have to feed people, because we can't stop the system for a season and say, okay, in the spring we're good to go. That doesn't work. Two days from now, somebody's going to be really upset (laughs) because they can't get food. Um, Because we harvest, you know, 35 million cows, 130 million pigs, and 2 billion chickens a year. You can't it's trying to do heart surgery without letting the heart stop. So how do you change that aside from all the emotional family and legacy pieces uh, that I'm sure Kara has something to say about?
1: Uh, yeah. So even when we started craft Beef, I talked to my dad about it and, you know, one of his first comments was, Hey, I, I tried to do that. That doesn't work. Um, which is fair. And, and I I relish his wisdom and experience that he's had in this industry and a lifetime of doing it. And he has forgotten more about cows in the markets than I think I will ever know. But yet we realize we have a different skill set too. And when when my dad and I were talking about some of the things even that we'd love to see change within the industry or some of the philosophical thoughts and a lot of the conversation we're having now and this connection, you know, to somebody who's really curious about it, his comment was i you know i don't disagree but this is your boat to row basically he's like this this is this is for you you know if that's what the direction you and you and jeff would like to go like that's go forth and conquer you mm-hmm. know he's like you know cuz he knows what he knows and he is wonderful at doing it and and that's where he is and i had the choice to look at it of Okay, so we can do it this way and continue this way or look at it differently. Um, so more or less we took that kind of on ourselves to do that differently and think about it differently and, and take a softer approach to we'd really like to connect with a consumer. I, I'd love, I, I would love for this, like these conversations And, and to backtrack for a quick second, you know, just a story of I've, I've been in animal health for 10 years and I've, I've been in this industry my whole life. And on the, on the ranch, when we have conversations about like, Hey, what, what do you produce here? Like what, you know, they're, they're a cow, calf herd. And, and they look at me and they're like, well, I sell 600 pound calves in the fall, the second week of October, every year. I'm like, okay, that's fair. But really you produce beef. Because without that market, you know, and a consumer being curious and, and want to consume this high quality protein, we don't have a reason to do what we do on the ranch. So it is a big, you know, it's a, it's a circle. It's a it's collective. The, having a consumer who really wants that and wants to know and have that engagement helps fuel our business instead of that antagonistic thought of, well, you're here and I'm here. Mm. Well, what can we do together? Let's have a conversation. Let's connect. Um, There was a thought process in ag for a long time of, well, we've got to educate our consumer about what we do. Uh, I I like to see it as connection and conversations. And, you know, when you potentially are three to four generations removed from where your food comes from. That's a different conversation than somebody, you know, like me that I've grown up in it my whole mm-hmm. life. There's just there's things that, that, that I know that I don't even know why I know
2: just because You only hold me accountable to like two of
1: those a month. They've been ingrained <laughs> for so long. I mean and then yeah, when when questions are asked, being able to take that that barrier down and be like, Oh, they genuinely just are curious. They just want to know mm-hmm. versus like you need to get your boxing gloves out and, you know, be able to do that. So, um,
2: yeah, and I think probably the other thing is to do, to put Colorado craft beef together. Kara and I were in a very fortunate spot. We both had very good corporate jobs. We were able to fund it ourselves. To take a typical agricultural producer that would have to go to the upper gener- upper generations or older generations, I have this idea, this is what we're going to do. And to go to the level that we've gone with craft Beef, it never would have got there. I don't mean that as a derogatory statement to anybody in the family. But the risk profile of someone that's 65 and been doing this for years will not allow for that. Mm -hmm. It's just
0: business. Yeah.
2: Uh, So, one, do you want to? Two, can you get the resources put together? And three, can you get the blessing of the other generations if you have to have it? That is a nasty, nasty climb. And I think a lot of people miss that. And I think there's a lot of the younger generation that wants to change things. But to a certain degree, you can't.
0: I'm curious. um, So I I read this a while ago that by 2030, half of America's farmland is exchanging hands and a lot of them don't have an heir. Um, I'm curious just yet your thoughts on how we go about that because whenever those places go for sale, there's not a whole lot of what I've noticed from my generation and the, the generation uh, after me, growing up, they want to do something with technology, whether it be TikTok or social media or other parts, versus something that's very labor intensive as farming and agriculture. So, whenever, uh, yeah, I guess just whenever that's happening throughout these coming years, do you think from just having conversations with folks that, might be interested, or how can we go about that problem in itself too? Because I'm a little worried about that, to be honest.
1: Sure. That is definitely something to consider on how, how that happens. Um, if we look at history, typically it's been that generation, the baby boomer generation, taught us to... Go get a job in town, you know, to to work off of the farm or the ranch. Like because they knew it was hard work. Mm -hmm. And they had done that their whole life. They they knew how hard it was. And so with the the changing of generations, they're like it was more you're geared to go find a different path versus this path can be viable and here's how. Instead it was kind of seen as well this is hard and i'm i'm going to help you go do something else versus let's have a conversation about how this can happen how you know we can have these conversations of when you come come home what this looks like you know maybe you do need to go work for somebody for a year and get your education and and when you come back bring something new and exciting and and have have kind of a different mindset about it um i don't know that i have the answer as far as the land ownership change you have thoughts on that jeff
2: yeah probably the scariest part about that is the number of institutional investors that are taking down farm ground but the thing to understand is that ground's not going to go out of production why would you own it to take it out of production um in every region i've ever worked in in agriculture and and by region i mean nationwide i mean i've done work in indiana and washington and texas and all over the place Mm -hmm. There's always five or six big operations ready to buy ground. So, yeah, the heirs may not be there. The ground may be sold. Someone will be there to lease it and operate it because the capitalistic side of the agriculture model drives that. But there is a lot of ground being purchased by people that aren't in the space. Like
0: who?
2: Oh, uh, I know of a farm up in central Washington that was a big hop farm where they grew a lot of hop for the beer industry. And uh, the Canadian Teachers Union bought it. It was like 3,500 acres.
0: Why is that allowed?
2: Well, I mean, you can buy real estate. Yeah. Perks of living in the greatest nation on the planet. But it's the the driver behind it is all these different investment vehicles, whether it's a retirement fund or a mutual fund or whoever. They're buying it because of the appreciable asset value. They usually won't even make money owning it, but the real estate appreciates at such a rate, it makes it, It's a great anchor for an institutional investment structure, and those kind of type of things exist all over. I mean, there I've seen them in Arizona on hay farms. I've seen logging operations that are owned by some sort of institutional investor like that. Um, the saddest part about that is, if you look at the agricultural industry, for instance, typically the value you have in your family operation is the real estate because if all you do is farm it and do custom farming and lease ground you might do okay mm-hmm. but your real net profit is real estate appreciation um, so you do you will find younger people that will literally go work their fingers to the bone and burn equipment to the ground trying to process different things and work through different verticals but at the end of the day they won't have near what they should have to show for it because the real estate is just not able to be purchased um but you know actually when Kara and I moved back to Colorado uh, we looked at a at a ranch like 20 miles away um good ranch it was a solid ranch few houses on it enough hay that you could have a 250 cow mother herd um and be totally self-sustaining inside this ranch well the math, if you were to buy the mother cows and run the property, you couldn't make the real estate payment with the cows. Wow. And that that, and that assumes you already <clears throat> own the cows, which are for, you know, if you buy 250 mother cows today, it's crazy because the cattle prices are really high. But in general, call it half a million bucks. So if you already owned the cows, the cows still wouldn't generate enough income to pay for the real estate. And that is going to continue to get worse. So if you don't have leverage and you don't have other assets that you already own that you can throw against a line to make that payment viable, you can't get in. If you don't have a war chest of some sort. Mm -hmm. We did the math. It's like if we were sitting on an extra million dollars, we can make that work. We were not sitting on an extra million dollars, just to be clear. (laughs) So anybody that's like, oh, I'm going to buy this, I'm going to buy that, I'm going to get into this, The math is not in your favor, especially if you're trying to get into it. And then you buy used equipment because that's what you can afford, which is only cost you 10% more than buying new. And now you're 30% less productive per hour. I mean, the math is just not helpful.
0: So for someone that might be listening that might be interested, um, just of the lifestyle and wanting to start one long-term, but then listening to this might take a step back I know you mentioned just taking a year to, to work on a farm. Do you have any other recommendations that you would give them if they really think that this is something that they would want to do for their life and future family?
2: I think mathematically the way Kara and I run Colorado Craft Beef is we stay as close to market potential for the cattle as we can so that if something were to go totally sideways, we can sell the cattle and not take an absolute beef. And I know of other producers in our space, in the direct-to-consumer beef space, that say my cost of production is 30, 40, 50, 60% higher. And that's just how it's got to be. It's a matter of time before that axe drops. You have to protect your risk. That's the only way these big ag operations operate is risk management. It's not profitability. And if you don't understand that, if you're like, well, I don't know what he's saying, man, get a book because buying those books is gonna be way cheaper than the total butt kicking you're gonna take in the market.
1: Or if somebody you know, wants that kind of exposure, I know farms and ranches across the country that they're you know have internship programs and get your foot in the door and, and see what it's about and and have that experience and you know, whether it's you just come away with just kind of more understanding and appreciation of where your food comes from, or you're like, hey, this is the kind of life that, that I want to have. Um, there are there are ag producers across the country that would be happy to help in that endeavor.
0: That's what I was curious with
2: yeah, you. Or t- marry oh, okay. the rancher's daughter. It <laughs> totally works.
0: <laughs> that's funny. Because uh, well, the farm I was on, he was struggling to have consistent help. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know if that's something you two have struggled with, because again, that goes back to just my generation, and then the generation uh, after me. We're just not used to growing up with that stuff, and just such advancement of technology. It's just such a different world.
2: Well, it's it's all an investment, right? You know, if you talk to AJ and what AJ is doing in Utah is pretty cool. I talked to him just a couple of weeks ago. But what investment are you going to make? You come from the tech space, and you can automate. You can do all sorts of crazy stuff. You can do that in ag too, but it costs money. Mm-hmm. And most people might look at that, but the hardest part in agriculture, especially if you want to go learn and work and get exposed to something, they're probably not going to pay you very well because that mindset is 20 years behind. Oh, you can't pay that much. I'm like, man, you can't afford not to. Uh, So we've been fortunate uh, with our many endeavors that we pay as good as we can to get the right people and provide proper leadership leadership so they can be empowered and give them opportunities to learn. Because to anybody that's an entrepreneur out there, money's okay. You can read any number of studies. Paying people a fair wage is good from a starting standpoint. But people want to learn. People want to be a part of a movement. People want to not just come to work and hold a damn chair down. You have to give them the opportunity to grow as a human. And if your stance is, we're going to give you an opportunity to grow, but man, you might leave, that's on you. Have a step for them to get to and so help you if you get them that good and they move on to another position, celebrate their win. You don't own them. And if you as a business owner don't like what I'm saying, that's unfortunate because you're probably having human capital problems.
1: And we absolutely make sure that that our people know the why, know the why of what we're doing and how we're doing it and you know I, we both are big why people so we, we want to make sure that we have that clarity and provide that clarity for the people in our camp so they they can understand that because um, a lot of times that is kind of a missing link of the whole process is mm-hmm. is having that conversation of why we're doing what we're doing I mean there's even been times that I still remember when I was a kid and, and we were sorting cattle for the 25th time that day the and same pen, by the way. I'm, Not a different yes. Pen. And and now I, I see I see why. But when I was twelve, you know, doing doing that work, um, that clarity would have been really helpful. Mm-hmm. I've been like, okay, now I understand more, much more, you know, invested in, in what we have going on instead of, well, we're just going to do this. Um so I, I think that as far as a business owner, farm owner, whoever, being able to clarify that why for your people in lead is really important.
2: Yeah. And what we've found, um, you know, we're looking at an expansion of our shipping facilities. And Kara and I were talking and she said, well, how many people is it going to take? Well, the labor bill is probably going to be in this range. She's like, that's not what I asked. That's how many people. I said, well, the labor bill is going to be in this range. And the question is, do we want eight people making a lower wage or four people crushing it? Because those four people that are crushing it are going to get as much work done as eight people that are there to hold the floor down. But when you start talking about paying people something like that, most people naturally react negatively. Well, that's expensive. I'm like, well, you get what you pay for. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could all drive Geo Metros and probably get around just fine, but an F-150 is pretty nice to drive, <laughs> and it's okay to pay for it.
1: Well, in agriculture, we have the mindset of of it's a sunk cost. It's just a cost center versus an investment. Um, So changing that mindset of we're investing in human capital or we're investing in in whatever we're doing versus it's just a cost. But a lot of times in production ag, so many of these things are a cost that cut into your profit margin versus an actual investment that is going to increase your value and you're able to capture said value. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's where we've we've looked at things a little different from that value proposition.
0: So you said the why. What is your why?
1: That's a good question. Um, I have a couple different whys, but if we want to talk about the the, the ranch and the legacy piece and and how that continues, is I want my daughters to have the same opportunities I did. Whether they choose that the ranch is their home and they want to continue that I want them to have that choice and being able to take that to the sixth generation that fuels me
0: that's beautiful how about yourself
2: I've always wanted to do something bigger I never knew what it was um but to do something bigger for me now is very much aligned with what Kara said I want Kara to be able to move the family legacy on because she wants to, not because she feels obligated. And if I can do that by doing spreadsheets and being a chucklehead that makes people laugh, it's a pretty small price to pay for you know, that level of connection to your family and to our customers. But my why of giving our girls the opportunity to see what's out there, look at things from a different lens, and if we aren't living that, it doesn't mean anything. So you can't say, well, we have to be creative. We have to be this. Okay, well, how? You know, show me an example. I'm like, no, I'll show you 100 examples, and I hope you remember 10 of them. Because there's a there's a saying that Kara and I both saw when we first had our oldest daughter, and it said, don't wish that you can provide everything your kids want. Wish that they knew all the things you wish you knew at their age. Hmm. And that's leading by example. That's that's being someone they can look up to not as a authoritarian figure but a life example and introducing them to people that are also those examples and surrounding yourself with that. Now, whether that's – I mean, some of our best friends are our customers. I mean, some of my jujitsu buddies are our customers. And, you know, shout-out to Denver Compound for letting me come get beat up once a <laughs> week. But that community is something that's lost. And you know, I think that really that community thing is really the heart of the regenerative ag movement. And I, I can't support that any more than we already do.
1: Yeah. I think that the difference these things make, I mean that's where my, my heart always is, is like how can we truly make an impact? How can we make a difference? And like Jeff said, you going to have to live it to be able to to do that and show that it can be done differently. Whether it's on the production side or the connection with the consumer side, you know, through a vehicle of a, of a business, but really leaving an impact on the world, making a difference, doing something that matters.
0: Yeah, no, that's amazing because, so like I was saying, I've been so disconnected from my food my whole life. I watched cancer take my brother two years ago. My mom died on the same day my brand launched. So my biggest why is the fact that I've seen firsthand what the standard American diet does to your family and then that made me just start thinking about again how we've gotten here with our food and once I started actually visiting farms and ranches and working on them like you were mentioning just spending one day working on a, a ranch or a farm will shift your whole entire perspective of, of your food of life um, gives you a deep appreciation for all of the hard work that goes into it to get food on your plate without even thinking about it uh, I'm trying to even figure out where I was going with this.
2: I think you were getting to your why.
0: why. Yeah, Yeah. and so it made me realize just how disconnected we're from our food, but just disconnected from you guys, and this is why I love these conversations, the fact that you're sharing them, because it's a voice that's just really been depleted in our our country, and I'm starting to notice more and more people wake up to what's going on with our food system, not necessarily regenerative agriculture, that's helped a lot too, but... I'd say with the pandemic and everything that's happened with all of that, um, I'm starting to notice more and more people wake up to that and think about the food that they're buying and from who. And that fuels me up for, as well, just hearing all these stories, um, just because, again, I don't know if I had visited a farmer ranch up until last year. Maybe one for like uh, a school trip, but I don't remember any of that. And so... Yeah, I guess just that, just thank you guys for for everything that you do, because without food, we perish. <laughs> yeah. Simple as that.
2: Well, and I think probably uh, Kara brought this to light, to my attention a few months ago now, that, you know, so many people in agriculture want to be their own hero. I make this food, you need to say thank you. We couldn't be more disagreed collectively with that statement. Our heroes are our customers, Our heroes are our partners. It's all the people that support what we are doing. They're the ones that allow us to do it. I mean, I remember there was one day, I think we just came back from Florida, and we were riding through pastures with Kara's dad. And, you know, it's like June. It's super green. You're on a horse, sun's shining. I looked at my father, and I said, hey. He's like, yeah. I was like, your office is pretty damn cool. (laughs) And he goes, Yeah. 50 years, I wouldn't change a thing. To have that level of love and clarity for something is exceptionally uncommon. And to have people understand that it's not because we want to be our own heroes. But to Kara's earlier point, if people aren't eating steak, Dave doesn't have a reason to be in his office. And if people aren't buying beef, we don't have a reason to be in Austin talking to people like yourself. And... We couldn't be happier. I mean, some of the people. I mean, it's to the point now that people just have my email, and I have people email, "Hey, this is out of stock. When's it going to be back? Hey, what are we doing? Hey, do you have any shirts? Would like to buy a shirt to support the brand." And seeing your own brand out in out in the wild is bizarre. <laughs> yeah. It's so weird. To, like I expect to see it in my office. I yeah. expect to see it in our boxes when they go out from the ranch. But to see it start to grow like that is crazy.
0: I really relate to that from just friends that have bought my apparel and then I'll see them sharing stuff like Brett and Harry, for example, sure. they'll share some stuff online. I see them wearing my shirts and it's just like, what the heck? It's yeah. so awesome. That feeling never gets old.
1: No, it's surreal.
2: Yeah. We got on the, we got on the plane to go to Maine. So we closed the deal, uh, with all of our new partners and we get on the plane and Kara looked at me on the plane. She's like, we're doing this. And I was like, yeah, we, uh, We we kind of are committed. They just shut the door, like, and you know you wonder if it's a joke. We're gonna get to Maine. They're gonna be like, ah, just kidding. And it wasn't. And you know then you meet guys like Travis Mills, who's a quad amputee from the eighty second Airborne that believes in what we do. I'm like, dude, that's heavy. You believe in what we do? Mm -hmm. How do you not execute for a guy like that?
0: That's awesome. transition a little bit, because uh, I guess just for educational purposes, on the direct-to-consumer model versus, I, I guess, going to retail, are there other directions to take that outside of those two?
2: You could go into distribution. That's more of the food service model. We really aren't probably ever going to be set up for that. Um, because, I mean, the the sheer math, if you want to go into like retail grocery stores... You're talking a minimum 40,000 pound burger order. They want a truckload just to get started. That's all the beef off 200 cows. That's all the burger off 200 head. Yeah. It's a big number. That's a scale that we can't hit. That's a scale most producers can't hit individually. That's why the the beef food system operates the way it does. Um, There are other things we're working on in-house where we can start to optimize and find some other spots to exist. Yeah. but when we want to think about you know, different ways the system can operate, man, I don't know. It's such a behemoth at this point. I think if you start changing stuff, which I think we need to, we have to be very careful with that. Because, you know, it's like the, the flux, you might remove the flux capacitor and then you have a big problem because you didn't know. Uh, to your point about food systems being fragile, um, Temple Grandin wrote an article during COVID that said, Our food systems are exceptionally efficient but exceptionally fragile and that's never been truer than it is today Uh, that just-in-time delivery system exists in almost all all of our consumptive behavior if it's toilet paper or gasoline or whatever you know like the the system's very sideways with an ability to pivot but you know, why is a car only $40,000? That's bizarre. How do you produce something that complex for forty grand? It's because you're insanely efficient and you don't have a lot of variables you're going to play with. And most people don't make that correlation.
0: So with the direct-to-consumer model, is that a way to, say, fortify the food system and I guess the fragility of it in terms of that could help incentivize more smaller ranches to to really go towards that model or I guess how can we fortify just that fragility of that system
2: I think the biggest potential effect you'll have is if you have 10 people pop up like us in every state FedEx and UPS can't handle it every one of these systems is so maxed out I don't know how you find the flex in a system to make that change um you know, like I know of one ranch in Oregon that went out of business because FedEx literally didn't ship an entire semi-load of product. They were out of business overnight. Wow. And they're FedEx. What are you going to do, sue them?
0: Yeah, you're just shit out of luck there.
2: That, that was the that was the actual definition. They were shit out of luck, and they went out of business. And they had a great model, and this was pre-COVID. Um, and, yet, and UPS and FedEx are building their systems all the time. They're constantly trying to improve, so I'm not throwing shade at them. But if we start taking trips to the grocery store out of the equation for downtown Austin and FedEx has to deliver all of it, it can't happen. I mean, it's it's an untenable model. You can't make that shift. So I really don't know how to fortify the system overnight in a meaningful way.
0: Do you know Jake Stakes? I don't. Uh, so he travels around and buys... I don't know. Everything that he buys, but he buys beef and chickens from different ranches and farms around America and then drives around, delivers them. So I didn't know if that could be a potential way of just independent delivery services from essentially farm to door.
2: That's a great idea.
0: Because I I don't know anything about that world, so I didn't know if there's any regulations or anything to where you can't do that.
2: I think regulatorily, as long as you're USDA inspected, it shouldn't matter. Because you'd basically pack the same, at least in Colorado you would pack the same health department licensing as a grocery store. Should be no factor. But people have to want to do it.
1: Yeah, I'd say that it comes down to that, of the intentionality of a consumer, of being able to go the extra mile to make those connections and want to do those things. You Because know, even when a customer with us places an order, it's still the next week before it's shipped. Um, so they may even have you know a week, week and a half of wait time before that product gets to them instead of, running down to the grocery store and getting whatever you want to cook that night. Mm -hmm. Um, So being just more intentional with those buying decisions and who you're supporting with your dollar and those buying decisions definitely is a step in the right direction.
2: Yeah. And I have seen some companies that are tipping up. I spoke to one on the phone just, gosh, probably a month or two ago and they're popping up in different metro areas and they want to buy pallet loads of product. To their distribution centers and then distribute in those towns, so I think there are people looking to disrupt the supply chain, in a good way, mm-hmm. um, and I think without that kind of ingenious disruption that doesn't totally sandbag something else, I, I don't know what you can change. But there's there's a lot of money going at that. Like actually, Mark Cuban just invested in a distribution company, yeah. one of their one of their warehouses in Dallas. So I think there are people, especially at a regional level, trying to protect certain regions because they see an opportunity. So, yeah, keep an eye out for some of those, especially if you're in bigger cities. Yeah, because that's the problem where we live. <laughs> nobody's going to take care of us. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you're in downtown Denver, you know, I know I know they were doing one in Denver, because so that's why they reached out to us. Um, they weren't le- weren't yet set up for refrigerated though. I was like, well, now you're talking a bunch of process nonsense bunch of sugar-coated lies. Maybe that's not what you need to have on emergency speed dial if something goes cataclysmic.
0: I just hope one day before I die that I'll be able to order six glass jugs of raw milk being delivered to my front door (laughs) because that would have been cool to experience. Yeah, I guess the last thing I have to wrap up the conversation, so since you were born on the farm or ranch, I don't know what I would call it, uh, what was that experience like? Because I know... You're saying you want to provide that for your kids and everything i'm just yeah i know it's a very broad and general statement but would just love to hear what that experience was like
1: sure i can get into all the details of the things that i love which i would be happy to uh, what i've realized though is i had a true genuine appreciation of life and the life cycle you know watching a calf be born and knowing that eventually they were going to, that life was going to end to nourish mine. I just had this like intense ownership of that to make sure that they had the best life possible. Because I am an animal lover. I mean, if, if I could have all of the critters known to man out our back door, I would do it. I don't. I think Jeff would be totally <laughs> I built a lot bought that, in so. <laughs> on that. <laughs> but I, I love these animals so deeply, and it, being so, you know, a lot of people are so disconnected from the fact that you know that those animals do end up being food, and having that uh, just genuine appreciation that these animals were placed here to help nourish our life, and it is our job to be the caretakers of them. And do everything to make their life the best possible. And I got to witness that firsthand. You know, when they're grazing thousands of acres. And and I love my horses too. And we still move everything horseback. Yeah. And watching the sunrise on a summer morning from the best seat in the house on the back of your horse going to gather cattle is irreplaceable. And... I want my children to have that experience. Mm -hmm. But also to your point about it being hard, I want them to have some of those experiences too. Because there's nothing that builds grit better than doing hard things and realizing that they can do it, Mm -hmm. that they can overcome that. You know, the fact that they still need to go feed their horses when it's 30 below and go feed cattle when it's snowing sideways and scoop snow out of bunks. Is it fun? No. (laughs) but it sucks out. Huh? Yeah, yeah, it is not fun. But you come away with that away from that experience with like such a sense of accomplishment and then seeing those animals thrive and it's it's just something that I know that we couldn't teach our children especially that kind of work ethic, that grit, that I don't know how else to teach them that yeah. without those experiences. Yeah, you know, kind of their controlled experiences obviously, you know, doing hard things, but Man, that's something that actually Jeff and I share is some of those challenges that we've had to overcome, and has made us, you know, hard workers, and we have that that work ethic and that kind of ingrained grit, and and that's part of what makes us work too. Mm -hmm. Um, The thought process of ever marrying somebody that didn't have that never came to my mind. You know, it's just something that makes us us and. Has made life just more fulfilled because of it.
0: I love that, and it, I mean, it just makes me think. Again, on the farm I was on, he had a five, three, and I think one-year-old, and it was just interesting to watch them just interact with, as a family. And the five-year-old, she, she'd kind of be upset at times whenever she wouldn't be able to help with certain things because she wanted to. So it was just really funny to just watch them, because again, that was. First time I'd ever lived on a farm for a period of time. And that's something that I definitely want for my future family. Jeff, did you grow up on a ranch or farm? Because I know you're saying you've been in agriculture.
2: I grew up on a little hobby farm, like 10 acres. We had cows and horses and pigs and did the 4-H thing. Uh, Nothing to the scale Kara grew up in. I mean, I helped people brand calves. I helped gather. I grew up riding horses. So luckily, I was at least... I at least passed the smell test with Kara's dad. <laughs> um, but I think the day that he decided I was okay is he watched me fix barbed wire fence, which I had done a lot of. And he's like, oh, okay, you're, you're all right. Like, uh, you could run fence stretchers well. Uh, but I had a good buddy of mine uh, from college. and He has a little girl that's probably 10 or 11 now. And he, he had a very profound statement one day before we had kids, actually, that made me really appreciate the animal side of things in a way i'd never thought about He's like man we got to get moved out of town i said why well i want my girls or, or their single daughter excuse me i want i want her to know what it's like to take care of animals i was like well sure but you know you guys have dogs and a couple of cats he goes "No, man it's different those are her friends just feeding her friend <laughs> there's a different mental connection when you feed the cow and sure he's your your friend to a degree but if you get him in a corner and he doesn't want to go through the gate, he will run you the hell over. Or, you know, the pigs that, like, recognize you, but only because you're bringing them food. There You you have to take that personal connection out of it. And it's it's this service mindset that he was trying to figure out how to teach his daughter. And, I mean, growing up where I did, you know, the animals all ate before you did. You came home late from a baseball game? I don't care. You know, you stopped and stopped grabbed hamburgers on the way home. Those hamburgers sat on the counter until you came in from feeding your horse. Period. <laughs> yep. And that selfless nature is something that I don't know how else you teach.
0: That's very true. I'm trying to think of.
2: Well, but it, but then to some degree, that's, I think, where a lot of people in agriculture are such nice people. You're selfless all the time. You have to be. And you and maybe you're grumpy and maybe you get hit in the face with a gate or broke your arm or did whatever, but it's still better than being in an office, I w- except when it's blowing sideways. I usually have a spreadsheet to build, but
0: that's all I thought about whenever I was the grueling work, the days that were just absolutely exhausted. I would just think about it's better than being trapped in an office building from nine to five and fluorescent lights all day. The yeah. Night and day difference. I,
2: think I told Kara it was like the first of March this this winter. We had a nasty winter. And I told her, I said, I'm offended at how good I am at moving snow now. Because, it was, I mean, we burned thousands of gallons of diesel just moving snow this year. Hmm. Because it was, it, even Kara's dad says, the worst winter he remembers wow. in quite some time. And it was, well, you know, believe it or not, the cows need fed on Christmas, on whatever day it is. It doesn't matter. Oh, it's cold? Oh, the pipes are frozen. Man, today's going to suck. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: I remember there was one time where the pipes did freeze, and, yeah, it's not fun. No. Because you and still got to do it. It's no longer optional either. No, yeah, because the, yeah. the longer that you don't uh, try to tackle that, the worse it obviously gets. Yeah,
2: Probably the best thing for me growing up in the minor exposure to ag that I had and then in construction is learning to not let it make you mad. That just makes it worse. Now you're mad and the job still needs done.
0: <laughs> well thank you too for joining i really appreciate this this is awesome
1: well, thanks for having thank us thank you
0: um i guess the last thing is there anything you'd like to share with the, the listeners where to find you
2: don't forget jay's call to action i forgot that yesterday Oh,
1: <laughs> well, i forgot it uh, yeah uh our website is the best spot to find us so coloradocraftbeef.com uh, we're active on all social channels too uh it's easy to interact there uh, but one of one of the things that especially people want to stay up to date on what's going on on, on the ranch, uh, if you sign up for our newsletter, that's perfect.
2: Yeah, and that'll come in as a pop-up right on the front of the website. Uh, that is where most of our sales come through. They come through directly. We don't publish a lot of sales um, if you're not part of the community. So that's that. And then we do have some new products coming out. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of activity with some of the new partnerships we
0: Awesome. All right. Well, goodbye y'all. Thank you. Of course, man. That was awesome.